I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Our celebration of 70s movie musicals continues with the second part of our interview with Lee Gambit, author of the book, We Can Be Who We Are, Musicals from the 1970s. In the last episode of the podcast, Lee took us behind the scenes of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, Willy Wonka, Cabaret, Jesus Christ Superstar, Phantom of the Paradise, Rocky Horror, and Tommy. This time we're tackling a total of 10 films, beginning with 1976's Kids as Gangsters musical, Bugsy Malone, and continuing right through the rest of the decade, finishing up with 1980's Fame. All sorts of fascinating details will be revealed. 1976, Part 1, Bugsy Malone. Yeah, um, what a concept. Um, so Archie Hahn talked to me about that. He actually did vocal work for, um, and he was in uh, Phantom of the Paradise, but he did a lot of the vocal work for uh, Bugsy Malone. And I kind of liken Bugsy Malone as the kid's version of something like Pennies from Heaven, which is very dark and, yeah. you know, has rape, rape and murder and all that stuff and, and um, abortion and prostitution. In it. And you don't get that, obviously, Bugsy Malone. But it's kind of this whole thing of um, miming or um, lip syncing to song. Yeah. I think that's that sort of makes it otherworldly. I love Alan Parker. I think Alan Parker is a genius. Um, once again, um, an auteur and a legend who made all genre. Um, what he does with fame is just incredible. What he does with um, uh, the horror film noir, uh, Angel Baby, uh, sorry, Angel Heart amazing so he does his diverse films and he does Bugsy Malone which is just incredible because it's this sort of um once again a, a, this stylized tr- uh, tribute and throwback to 30s gangster movies but it's still just as dark and as bleak as these 30s gangster movies and but the end of it is really interesting it's kind of an inversion to uh it's meta what happens at the end is the kids uh, all friends. There's no real gang warfare. There's pie everywhere. Everyone's covered in pie, <laughs> right? Um, which I loved as a kid. The whole idea of gunning each other down with pies was cool. Um, but at the end of it, it's kind of like you, you make your own self up. You create who you are, and you can be who you want to be. And the lyric that Paul Williams writes—I can't paraphrase it offhand now—but it's that whole of thing of you can be it, you can do whatever you want to do, or whatever. And that—that's kind of interesting because it's, it's nice to sort of see that. Um, in the realm of a decade that was all about um, uh, characters losing themselves and losing themselves to um, the road taken that wasn't the right road to take in the first place. So with Bugsy Malone, the whole promise of the the premise is you can create who you want to be. And I like that about it. But before that is all this really kind of gritty toughness, which is so essential to this thing, which if you're going to tribute thirties gangster Warner brothers stuff, you want it to be tough. You want it to smell like James Cagney, you know. Um, so th- that film really captures that. And I loved all the downscaling of things and everything is all kid size. It's just cool. And also just how hardened these kids look. Like they are proper, you know, uh, hardened theatrical types. And I love that. I don't think you can ever do this now. They'll all be clean and squeaky clean. Oh, yeah. and yuck, you know, gross. And the songs <laughs> would be, you know, the songs would be awful. But this is just, you know, down the line, proper studio tribute, homage, um, gritty, tough filmmaking. And, you know, Jodie Foster, she's just a knockout 
in this film. Her performance is amazing, and you can see the wisdom beyond her years in it. And, you know, she did Taxi Driver before this, so her to come in from that and then come into a film doing with a bunch of kids, <laughs> like that's a big jump. Oh, yeah. But, wow, like, yeah, just a really, really cool, cool film. And the kid that played Fat Sam, I mean, Jesus, and, you know, the girl that played Blousey, they're like, they're like old souls, you know, in these kids' bodies. But, yeah, I love it. I love Bugsy Malone. The second one for 76 is uh, – and you've already touched on it, so I don't know what you want to add, but I have to mention it again as A Star is Born. Okay. Um, yeah, I I think it's excellent. Uh, yeah, the songs, again, um, especially the Paul Williams ones, really beautiful, Woman in the Moon, etc. Um, but, yeah, Streisand – you know, top of her game, uh, her voice once again, a marvel. But Chris Christopherson's performance, so good. So this comes out in a period of, you know, the sort of sensitive real men kind of syndrome that was happening. So you have all these really sort of tough um, dudes that are real man, man's men, but they're also men that kind of sacrifice for women. And there's a whole slew of these movies. You get westerns like this. You get films like The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing with um, Reynolds, who, you know, basically does everything he can for Sarah Miles. And then you have um, Christopherson again, and Alice doesn't live here anymore, where he sacrifices his own um, life for her to have happiness. Um, and then you have uh, Brid- uh, sorry, what's his name in King Kong? Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Bridges, you know. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Bridges. So all these sort of, uh, I, I call them the, the the sensitive bearded men, you know, these, these <laughs> men who are kind of real manly, but also look after women and care for women and let the women grow and i think that's a perfect example of it star is born um he is on the decline like he is an alcoholic he's drug adult he's depressed he's bored that's the essential thing but he is constantly um, propping her up and he's looking after her and it's a really nice extension of the garland version but both of them are very different to the original two so what price hollywood um is the first incarnation of a star is born which is a wonderful pre-code film, and it has one of the best suicide sequences ever put to film, I think. This incredible montage where the guy's about to die and he kills himself and, you know, dissolves and fades and, um, oh, just a really remarkable sequence. And then the second one would be the first, A Star is Born, um, with Janet Gaynor. And there's a really cool sort of um, subplot that she has with her grandmother. And then what happens with the Garland one is the Esther character, the... um, Garland character is on her own, um, and that's the same thing with this one, um, with with Streisand's version. She has her band, her two singers, but she's on her uh, on her own, which is interesting, sort of a different dynamic to the Gainer one. But um, you know, uh, I look the Kuko A Star Is Born is my favourite of these films. I think that's just you know ridiculously good, perfect. James Mason, Judy Garland, just you know stunning. And then also The Man Who Got Away is one of the best sequences ever put to film um, and influenced so much to come after it. But this version, the rock and roll version, the stadium rock version, I do like as well. The problem with it is it gets bogged down. You can see that there were so many riders on it um, that sort of, you know, threw in their input. Um, And you can see that these sequences are bogged down and ignored in favour of um, montages. The film has like maybe three, and the the montages really, for me, do nothing for the film. They don't really sort of tap into their relationship or, you know, how things are sort of uh, going. 
um, with their like their tumultuous relationship. But you know, oh well, it is what it is. But for the stadium stuff and the sheer spectacle and scope is incredible. And it was Streisand, I guess, wanting to sort of um, touch base with youth culture. Um, you know, she was still young, right? right. And she was doing um, so. She was wanting to sort of do a Woodstock-style rock and roll film. Um, and I think she works really well in that. Um, but yeah, you know, and Nick, uh, yeah, no, who is it? Is it, who's the, is it Nick Nolte? Is he in it? Nick, I, is he? I don't remember Nick Nolte being in it, but no, that doesn't not mean Nick he's not. Nolte. No. Who's the other one? Who reminds you of Nick Nolte? <laughs> I don't know who reminds you of Nick Nolte. <laughs> oh my God. What's his name? Um, he played Buddy Holly. Oh, Gary Busey. Gary Busey. Yeah. yeah. Gary Busey is in it and he's great because he's the, He's always with the with the drugs for um, Chris Christopherson. Yeah, it's before and he lost he, his like mind. His yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, a great, a good, 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 great film, great spectacle, and just like I said, it really does capture the seventies as a whole, not just the culture, the youth culture, but also the film industry and the shift there as well. Right, absolutely. Uh, Seventy-seven Part One is Martin Scorsese's New York, New York. Yeah. Um, Wow. So the, my favorite image ever of this film is an image of Scorsese at the Moviola, like at the, you know, running through the film. And Liza's there with him. And also over his shoulder is Vincent Minnelli. So that image sums, sums that movie up. It's Martin Scorsese's love letter to Minnelli, who right. is one of his right. idols and, ma- you know, a master teacher. Um, and Scorsese, of course, and Liza their collaboration as artists is just, you know, remarkable. Um, but just that film is so heavy and breaks my heart every time. But it's about these two artists, um, you know, De Niro and Manali, you know, my God, the dynamic there as well. The chemistry on screen is just palpable and scary and it's violent and it's, um, you know, passionate and heated and and just to sort of have this real beautiful way that he, Scorsese balances the sort of artifice and magic of um, film to gritty realism is just really, really, you know, powerful. So he has like these, you know, artificial sets, but then has really straight up dialogue. Um, the sequence that really gets me all the time and I can't actually watch it, but it's so too confronting is the taxi scene on no, the, the car scene where they're arguing right. that goes on for ages. It just gets, to this point where it's like, you know, they're just screaming at each other and it's like really unsettling. Um, that kind of stuff is really classic Scorsese. You know, he just gets in there and makes you feel uncomfortable when he does it so well. But then, you know, juxtaposed to that is all this beautiful kind of celebratory stuff that tributes classic Hollywood. But Scorsese, I could listen to forever. Um, when he talks about movies and when he talks about musicals, he's just incredible when he talks about Doris Day and what she represents, when he talks about Busby Berkeley's work, when he talks about films like Footlight Parade or 42nd Street or Vincent Minnelli's The Bandwagon, all these incredible movies that are really dark and about art and about uh, crime and about culture and about um, the shifting ways artists work and how they're sort of having to jeopardise and sacrifice their work in order to make things, you know, go as planned. Um, and I think that's the same case with this film. This film is very much influenced by a film called uh, My Dream Is Yours, which had Doris Day as a star in it um, and Jack Carson, um, which is an incredible film that you need to check out if you haven't seen it already. But it's very similar. 
Um, and in that, Doris Day plays a single mum uh, who is a very amazing talent, <clears throat> and she has this sort of uh, relationship with her manager that's really quite centred and lovely, but she ne- never really sees it. But the the lover that she has is this kind of you know upstart alcoholic who is an egotist, and he's an, he's a crooner, very successful, but he's jeopardising that because of his alcoholism, blah, blah, blah. But New York, New York sort of is a tribute to that and all those kind of musicals about relationships, about artists, between artists. Um, and, you know, Dick Miller pops up in it, for God's sake. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so how can you not love it? But, you know, the songs as well, you know, the world um, goes round and all those great songs and De Niro's, you know, explosive De Niro and Liza's explosive Liza and it just works. Really, really cool film. I wish Scorsese did another musical. I wish he really would. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about, it, like, the diversity of Scorsese. I mean, just if you look at three movies from the 70s alone of his, when you go from Taxi Driver to New York, New York, to Raging Bull, I, oh, I guess mm-hmm. Raging Bull is 80. Uh, but still, you look at the diversity just in those three films. That's amazing yeah. to me for a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, that's proper filmmaker. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. And that's, that, that's, that's, you know, going back, to, if you go look at Raoul Walsh, um, Ida Lupino, Charles Walters, Vincent Minnelli, um, Billy Wilder, these were people who did all genre. Robert Wise, I mean, for God's sake, he did, you know, West Side Story, then The Haunting, then, you know, um, I, I'll Cry Tomorrow and... Star Trek, um, the motion picture. <laughs> Star Trek, yeah. Not I'll Cry Tomorrow, he did the other Susan Hayward one. Um Oh God, I want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, Star Trek, exactly. The Haunt, uh, or, uh, Audrey Rose, yeah. Sound of Music. You know, these are people who did everything. And then in the 70s, like I said, there were these people who did the same thing Spielberg, um, you know, Scorsese, De Palma, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. They just they tapped into each genre. And that's cool because they're big fans as well. Absolutely. Um, and now I put on my list for 77 part two, but I, I, it's really not a musical at all. It's Saturday Night Fever, but it's not, it's, yeah. not, it's not really a musical. Not Nobody a, sings. Not a traditional musical. No, but it, uh, someone called it a dancicle, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. But it, it, it does use music to sort of move story forward okay. and to, and it uses it as an expressive tool, um, in a diegetic way, but also to comment on character. So the character that, Travolta plays the character who comes to life through music. And so, you know, he's in a dead-end job, he's immigrant, you know, kid, he's very, you know, poor working class Italian guy, and then when he gets to the disco, he's king, right? And we, that's an old adage, we know this about the story. But what the music does, the use of the Bee Gees and all the other disco stuff in this film, is it uses it the way a musical uses song to um, put push story forward and to have an insight into character or to comment on scenario. And that's what this one does. So it most certainly would be considered a sort of, I guess, quote unquote, revisionist musical. There you go. Okay. Good. Yeah. The way like a revisionist Western plays with tropes of Westerns or a revisionist vampire film like Martin from Romero plays with tropes, but is it a vampire film? Yes. No, that kind of thing. So that's what I think this one does. Um, I love Saturday Night Fever for its brutal examination of masculinity. Um, it really is just about what it means to be a man. And, you know, this guy is, you love him and you hate him. And he's complicated and he's, you know, explosive and, you know, he's cool, but he's also really uncool. And everything about him is just really complicated and and and, and um, 
really, really, really captivating. Um, and I think it's, I, I feel like it's probably my favorite Travolta performance. Um, uh, next to something like Blowout. Um, but yeah, no, I think he, he just nails it. And it's just a really electric, strong film. And what it says about Italian um, New York culture at that time and the immigrant experience. Um, and I write in the essay for it in the book all about there's a scene at the um, dinner table and it's a heated discussion. They're all arguing and yelling and he's wearing this this huge bib, like this big white sheet, you know, as a bib, not to get his, clo- you know, his dress right. shirt dirty. <laughs> but I just write in the essay that he, he kind of reminds me of a, a throwback or a hangover of a Roman you know, this idea of this guy who's, you know, still linked to this heritage of this Roman gladiator or god, um, but he's stuck in this, you know, Brooklyn or wherever they live, you know, little house. But, yeah, that kind of thing. I think what it says about Italian culture and masculinity is really fascinating, and it needs to sort of be held up in that regard, not just a friggin' film about the Bee Gees. <laughs> Please, <laughs> not, no. You know? And I think that's the other thing as well. These films, this film, Saturday Night Fever and films like Fame, and all these movies are really gritty. They are really dark films. They're really punchy, dark, grimy films. And people don't remember that. They just think, oh, yeah, it's Travolta doing his dancing in the disco. Or if it's fame, oh, it's the kids jumping around the taxis. Watch them again. Like, right. they're really gr- grueling, gritty, hard films. Absolutely. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. Uh, you still got energy? Because I, I, I got greedy in 78 and put three titles down. You have to tell me if you have the oomph. To do it. Yeah, I'm good. You sure? Okay. Uh, 78 part one, Greece. Yeah, I mean, very important. So I got a few people for Greece as far as the interviews went. One of my favorite things was Barry Pearl, who played Doody, one of the um, T-Birds, told me that Greece was really important for immigrant kids to see. Uh, so European immigrants, so Italians, Polish, uh, you know, Swedish, whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, why? Because when the musical came out, it was all about that. It was all about Italians and uh, Polish. You know, Sandy Dabowski was the girl before they changed to Australian in the film. But it was about the immigrant experience and poor kids, poor poor white European kids, right? So when, audience, when kids saw that, young people saw that, it really resonated. The film came out even more so because it was on a global level. And I liken that to me, my experience as, you know, Maltese immigrant in Melbourne and Greece was freaking hugely popular with us, you know, with kids, with young uh, European kids. So I, I got it. So I it registered straight away. And, and that was really interesting. Um, I really love it. I think people you either love it or you don't or people are sort of torn between liking it or not. You can't deny its importance. Um, you know, it changed things. It changed the way people thought about musicals. Um, it changed um, the, it, you know, it was a big box office hit. It was one of the, you know, the, 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 what Pauline Kael coined the popcorn junk pile films, you know, that and Star Wars and all those, and Superman, all the films that made lots of money that, you know, were really accessible and easy to take in and watch. Um, I love that. The film is bittersweet and has a real sort of undercurrent of sadness, I think. The ending, um, which Barry Pearl actually talks about that song, um, We Go Together, being the heart of the story, really sort of, I don't know, hits a nerve. It actually makes you sort of weep because you don't know where these kids end up. And that's the thing about Greece. It's kind of 
you know, these are dead end kids. What the hell are they going to end up doing? You know what? You know, so there's no. Yeah, I don't know. If you look at something like, you know, um, other high school themed musicals of earlier years, like in the 50s, you kind of get a sense the kids are going to be all right. But Grease, you don't really know. Um, also, it's a film that really plays into the um, 70s being obsessed with 50s culture. Um, there's a lot of that happening. American Graffiti, Happy Days starts, Laverne and Shirley. You have, um, you know, yeah, musicals like Grease. Um, also elements of 50s culture in stuff that's kind of contemporary or fantastical, like Rocky Horror. Essentially, the songs in Rocky Horror are very 50s rock and roll songs. Um, and then Grease happens and it sort of says rock and roll is here to stay, which I really like because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you've got Saturday Night Fever, which is all that disco, but rock and roll is king as far as storytelling goes. And I think that makes sense, unless it's, you know, traditional or classical or Broadway-style musical but rock and roll is the sort of epitome of what the 70s musical was kind of about when you think of rock music sort of influencing Broadway, um, you know, which starts with things like Bye Bye Birdie, but really kind of catapults with things like Hair. Um, but, yeah, I, I really like um, Grease. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a strong, fun, you know, lovely film, and it has a bit of sweet quality, I think. Absolutely. And you also, I'm bringing you into another one, which I don't think you're going to have as strong a feeling for, but maybe you will. And I, I just want to, for some reason, cannot avoid like a car accident. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't watch it again. <laughs> it's painful, isn't it? It is. It really is. And I, I, yeah. And you know what, though? It was really refreshing to be able to write on something I just did not like at all. <laughs> uh, okay. But I remember seeing bits of it as a kid. I never, it never, it was never, so maybe that's different. So maybe if I saw it as a kid in its entirety, I might have liked it now as an adult. But I just don't, yeah. There's not much I can say about it. Um, there's, you know, George Burns is in it. That's a positive. Steve Martin, right? Yeah, there's much I can say about it. It's a really, it's a really tricky watch. Unlike something like Can't Stop the Music, which I think is, you know, ludicrous, but it's actually watchable. Like, you know, it's a stupid, fun mess. Um, and you can watch that and kind of be endeared by it. And it's a really watchable experience. Like, if it screens all the time on like New Year's Eve here. And if I'm home, and it's on, I'll go, okay, I'm going to sit through it because it's just an easy watch. But um, uh, Sergeant Pepper, nah, not easy at all. Um, yeah, and also jukebox musicals, just not my thing. What, what, I, I'm, this is more about just seeking your opinion on this. How did? Why do you think it went so off the rails? Because when I, I mean, I was 18 when the movie came out. God, that was a long time ago. Uh, but uh, and I just remember, and I'm a giant Beatles fan, have been, and and I just watched this movie. And I was just devastated by it, just how bad it was. Uh, yeah, I don't there, know. I don't, think, I don't think they thought it out. It's like you could totally weave together a plot with Beatles songs, easy. Right. Um, Funny that people. I mean, like, I there was a um, uh, made-for-TV film called "The Birth of the Beatles." Yes, you know, a, a straight-up bio film, which is great. Um, but the thing about this concept idea just didn't gel, but could have worked. Could have possibly worked. Yeah, if they structured it better and maybe kept it straight. Maybe not do. I mean, there's some element. Like, I mean, the um, there's a sort of the moment where she dies and whatever. That you know, that's quite deep and dark and heavy i guess but 
maybe if they went a straight route rather than sort of silly, campy, it might have worked out. But yeah. um, it's it's interesting because the the two the the Beatles films like Help and um, Hard Day's uh, Night, Hard Day's Night, and um, the cartoon one, Yellow, Yellow Submarine. Yep, they're great. They're terrific. Yeah, they're heavily influential. They're great films, but. Yeah, this one just didn't work. It could have. <laughs> but I think it's the nature of the, the jukebox musical. Most of them are shit. Like, really. Like, they just aren't... I don't know. They just don't work. Like, you get take pre-existing... They're lazy. You take pre-existing songs and you rope in some plots and sometimes you alter lyric to fit the plot, but it doesn't... I don't know. Because I can't stand things like Mamma Mia and We Will Rock You... And all those things, I just think it's lazy and really, uh, to be honest, a little bit of an offence to uh, composers and libertists and songwriters and composers who do musicals. I really do. Yeah. Uh, I, I hate when how you know Broadway's been taken over by these things a little bit. Um, I think they're sort of sort of dying down now, but they are a bit obnoxious. Very different to the musical biopic. So something like Jersey Boys is different. That's not a jukebox musical. Carol King Beautiful is another one that's, I think, a, an effective show. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I like it a lot. Yeah, I mean, that, but that's, again, a bio musical. Yeah, that's right, different right. To, yeah, different to a jukebox musical. Yeah. I think the, 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 you know, the best jukebox musical example would be something like the Blues Brothers, um, where they use pre-existing songs to, you know, tell a story mm-hmm. but yeah i think sergeant pepper just loses it doesn't yeah. doesn't doesn't yeah i don't know <laughs> you know you brought up a hard day's night i think one of the snottiest funniest lines ever is when um the old guy on the train says to john lennon after he's been watching john and paul be you know basically assholes and he looks at them and he goes you know i fought the war for your sort and john uh-huh. just leans over to him and he goes i bet you're sorry you won you know? <laughs> I don't know why it just popped in my head when you brought up the movie. So there you go. Uh, so, all right, moving on. Uh, the last one again, I don't know if you're going to feel any better than Sergeant Pepper about it, but I just wanted to include it. Uh, the Wiz. The Wiz, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most in- insane stories in Hollywood history, but also one of the most political films and also a really important black film and also one of the last quote unquote black exploitation films of that. Of, of a purest sense of that era. And also um, this really bizarre, nightmarish take on a stage show that, you know, was pretty much just, just had one sort of thing. Go- I mean, not, I mean, it's a great stage show, but I mean, the idea is, you know, a uh, black version of The Wizard of Oz, so a Motown score and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the film, the way Sidney Lamette presents it is, you know, he can't not make a political film or have something socially relevant or aware to say. And that film is powered with it. So, you know, the idea of changing the the um, Dorothy character from a little girl to a teen, uh, sorry, an adult school teacher who's scared of life is kind of really interesting because it's sort of talking about black women who are told that they, you know, have to stay down and they, you know, and they're, they're oppressed all this time and now they get to grow and learn and experience life, which is really cool. Also, the 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 ghetto and Harlem becoming Oz was really cool. Um, all the sort of tropes of black cult, urban culture thrown in there that kind of, you know, respond to what is happening in Oz. And also um, Joel Schumacher, the screenwriter, really utilising Est and Estian and Touch Me Therapy fads that were happening during this period in this film. 
and you see it in the script, you see it as, as the film progresses, as she's moving forward through the film, um, you see these kind of practices. There's lots of primal screaming that Diana Ross does. Um, there's a lot of, you know, um, uh, questioning her, her sense of worth and who she is and, you know, where she's going to move to. Um, Michael Jackson's Scarecrow is always philosophizing. He's got these, you know, strands of, you know, his head stuffing is made of different quotes from philosophers. Um, you know, the, the, the Tin Man not being able to feel. It's all sort of black um, experiences embedded in this, this rock and roll weird-looking musical um, with, you know, excellent designs by Stan Winston. Um, and, you know, Tony Tony Walton, I think, did the designs of the costumes. He was Julie Andrews' husband. And just a really – a Jeffrey um, Holder worked on it as well, who would end up being Punjab in Annie right. a few years later. But, yeah, just a really weird combination of artists. You know, Ted Ross and Nipsey Russell and Quincy Jones, Lena Horne. I mean, you know, goddess Lena Horne in there um but yeah just a really interesting fascinating film and i do love that story that diana ross went to the studio to universal and said you should make dorothy an older woman i want to play this role so poor old stephanie mills yeah <laughs> right she got shut out yeah dorothy <laughs> and broadway gets sidelined but it makes it different it makes the film different and more adult and more uh there's more room to sort of ex- explore darker turf um, if it's not a kid. So I like that aspect. And also the songs are terrific, especially a song, Be a Lion, which I really love because it's all about, um, you know, um, finding the courage to be a lion, I guess, um, and not, you know, feeling the need, feeling that, that oppressive need to sort of be the victim all the time. I think that's really cool. But, yeah, no, I really I really like the, the Weirs. And I remember as a kid, um, just being really, really kind of creeped out by a lot of the designs in it because it is quite creepy, quite yeah. freaky. Uh, for 79, I picked Hair. If there's a better alternative, let me know. Hair is amazing. I think only – well, look, uh, let me start again. The stage show of Hair is probably one of the most important musicals um, of that period um, and definitely of all time. But most, one of the most important pieces of American theatre, I think, of all time. Um, it's revolutionary, it's smart, it's, um, it's hard hitting, it's controversial. It does everything that, you know, working theater should do. It's a perfect example of working theater. When it got time to the film adaptation, it, you know, uh, still to this day, I mean, I think one's passed away, but Raldo and Ragni, the writers hated the film. They just never thought the film captured the essence of the show. But the, by the time the film adaptation came, obviously when you're doing a stage-to-film adaptation, you want to make it streamlined and have a plot that's, you know, tangible and audiences can grab onto. The stage musical, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, is kind of like a vaudeville show. There's, there's a very wafer-thin plot line, but it's pretty much um, expressionistic. It's um, bits and pieces. Um, it's vigorously, you know, sort of anti-war and anti-America and anti-American sentiments and anti-religion and and angry and it's also very sexual and it's got all this stuff happening and the film came about and the film was directed by Milos Forman who again another master did all genres you know Um, uh, he decides he hires the screenwriter and the screenwriter writes a straight-lined plot and changes a lot from the stage show but it works it works okay the problem is the songs 
don't seem to sort of hang off any kind of plot. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So you're kind of watching this thing where it breaks into song and it's kind of a little bit sort of jarring because you're like following this very, very dense, straight plot, which is very dramatic. And the, and the songs are dramatic, but they don't seem to tie in well. But it doesn't kind of matter because what you've got here as well is the incredible choreography from Twyla Tharp. And I think that's the real star of the film. Um, terrific cast. John Savage is amazing. Yeah. Um, Treat Williams is excellent. Beverly D'Angelo. They're all great performers, my goodness. Um, and Milos Forman, it's his favorite, it was his favourite film. So Miles Chapin, who was in the film, he played um, Beverly D'Angelo's younger brother. He said to me, he told me that, yeah, um, this was my, Milos's favourite film. Not Cuckoo's Nest, not Amadeus, this one. Um, and I, I love the look of New York in it. Um, it. The film took a long time to make. Um, I talked to a bunch of people from Alan Heim to Alan Foley, um, and they had these great stories about the film and how the, the production was kind of troubled here and there. Um, but, you know, it got there in the end. But it's it basically, for me, I love it. I get carried away with it all the time when I see it. The, the music's just beautiful. It's perfect. And... But the thing is, I remember sort of having a love-hate relationship with the plot as a teenager and in my 20s because I was like, why didn't they just do more of what the stage show did and just trust an audience to go into this world that wasn't so rigid in plot? Um, but, you know, obviously they had to because the studio was like, no, 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 we need this steady plot because if we do it as an expressionistic working theatre as a film, it probably won't work and people won't see it. Um, but yeah, Twyla's choreography and Anne Roth's um, costume design is great. And I love its, you know, its moodiness and its anger. It's got the anger still there, which I like because it's an angry musical. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love the film and I've come to love it a lot more as I get older. <laughs> All right. 1980 part one. We're almost finished. Uh, part one, Xanadu. Okay. Once again, like Can't Stop the Music, a fun mess. It's really, really easy to watch. Um, uh, what does it say? I don't know. Um, <laughs> a, friend, a friend of mine, Adam know. Devlin, is a big devotee um, of it, and he's doing a book on it. So we'll see what he comes up with because that'll be really fascinating and he's getting all the interviews and stuff. But, look, I really love the songs. I think the songs, ELO and ONJ, that's a really good marriage, I think. Um, yeah, really cool songs. Funny setup, weird, you know, concept show. Um, I always laughed that Fred Astaire's last film was, um, or one of his last films was Ghost Story, which is just so brilliant and so moody and fantastic yeah. um, with the Lawrence D. Cohen excellent script and, and also that great cast. And Gene Kelly's is Xanadu. And it's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, I mean, you know, it's just such a jarring difference. But Gene Kelly, I mean, you know, what can you say? The man is a genius, did such beautiful, perfect work throughout his career. Um, I love him as a filmmaker. I'm sorry, as a star and a dancer and a singer as well as a filmmaker. And, you know, this amazing, hot-blooded Irish man. Um, Richard Cobritz told me great stories about him when I interviewed him for Christine, the Christine book, because um, they worked together on Hello, Dolly and some other things. But... Yeah, uh, Xanadu, you know, weird concept. Um, you know, I love Michael. Um, what's his name? Oh, God, who's the star? Michael friggin' Alec. I don't remember. Oh, anyway, his quote was great when he said, um, 
you know, the Warriors opened many doors for me and Xanadu shut them. <laughs> so, so, yeah, look, I, I love it and I it's great. But, I look, what can you say about it? I, also, I, I do love the Don Bluth animated sequence. I think that's really cool because that was at the time when Don Bluth left Disney. Um, you know, he went, he'd done Pete's Dragon earlier and then went off and started his own company and that was one of his first sort of, um, ventures out of Disney right. doing the sequence in Xanadu. But yeah, no, look, it's a fun, it's fun. It's silly fun. The other side of the coin then is, and it's something you touched on earlier Then I think, and this would be our last film was fame. Yeah. Um, remarkable. Um, there's a, there's a lot of things I love about this film. One of them is that the kids don't get closure. You don't know what happens to them. And that's something that I think is chilling. If you watch the film and you're like, okay, you know, Irene Cara just, you know, there's suggestive rape there. Um, you know, the Ralph Garcy character played by Barry Miller, who once again, what a performance, should have been nominated for an Oscar. He's amazing in it. Um, he's addled by drugs, but you never see him again. And then you have the closing, I sing the body electric number. You have some of the kids there, but some of them aren't there. So that aspect is just fascinating to me. Um, the the grittiness the ugliness, the, the you could see the sweat stains. The kids are all really, really um, real. <laughs> it's yeah. a very honest film. It's a very honest film, brutal film. It suggests that, yeah, you want to be in the arts, but it's going to cost you. And the tagline, you know, itself is perfect. It summarizes it. It's um, from memory. Um, if they've got everything, if they've got what it, if they've got what it takes, it's going to take everything they've got or something like that. This whole idea of, of the arts consuming you and spitting you out. And they're just at school. <laughs> they're not even in the industry yet. Um, but, yeah, I love its bleakness, its honesty, its ugliness, its grittiness, the way the kids are all sort of alienated, um, the the frenetic, brilliant editing, um, the Gary Hambling, um, he was up for an Oscar for it. The songs are terrific. Um, the energy... Um, how um, each character is sort of representative of, um, you know, a different ghetto or um, a different experience. That great moment with Anne Shearer, uh, sorry, Anne Mira, sorry, Anne Mira, as um, the teacher where she screams at Leroy and she says, don't you kids ever think about anything but yourself? So this idea of, you know, yeah, we love these kids, you want them to succeed, but they're also pretty self-involved. Um, are just caring about their own dreams, and I love that she shatters that. It's just a really cool, honest, dark, and blunt film, and I really respond to it. And I think, um, you know, it's really underappreciated. And then it sets uh, spawns the TV series, which, from memory, I thought was, you know, obviously can't do what Fame did because Fame is littered with, you know, swearing and drugs oh, yeah, and. New yeah. Etc. But the show can't do that. But then I was rewatching it, um, you know, here and there, and going, oh, yeah, fuck. There's some heavy stuff in these episodes, which is cool. It's like it's, you know, it's very issues based. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I love Fame. I think it's Alan Park. It's my favorite Alan Parker film. Um. And you know, once again, another director who did so much different stuff, Midnight Express, and you know, all the Mississippi Burning. So yeah, really cool stuff. You know, I'm obviously I'm only doing some of the movies that you covered in the book. But for yourself, when you finished that book and you held that book in your hand, the work is done. You're able to take it in. What was your feeling overall looking back at the sort of the process and the finished results of this book? 
relief. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we all and, feel that. Yes, I understand. <laughs> yeah, uh, and also, um, yeah, just, oh, God, hopefully, hoping that people will actually watch the films that I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's always funny when, you know, you have friends and they, they'll buy a book off you and it's to show support and it's lovely. Yeah, God bless them doing that. That's really sweet. But you have to engage. You can't just buy a product. Because I just feel like, you know, if, I, if I've written a monograph on The Howling and you just buy it because you're a friend or, um, you know, whatever, that's that's not enough. I think you need to maybe then watch The Howling and watch other werewolf stuff and watch other stuff about the media or watch other stuff about, you know, um, I don't know, whatever else I discuss in that book and go, oh, yeah, Lee, blah, blah, blah. And that's where conversation can happen. That's why it's really nice when people like yourself and, you know, fans of stuff are buying this stuff and, you know, supporting local, not local, supporting writers and artists who, you know, are basically, you know, doing this because they love it fundamentally. They're not making, you know, I'm still paying rent and have a day job and blah, blah, blah. Right. But, you know, this whole thing of just engaging with this stuff that's discussed. So not just sort of, you know, having it sit on the shelf, but go, oh, wow, you know, I never thought of Pete's Dragon like that, or I never thought of, you know, I've never seen Tomorrow, this sci-fi musical with Olivia Newton-John, you know, and that sort of stuff's really exciting to me. So just to get that stuff out there and to make sure people go, oh, wow, yeah, all that jazz is amazing. It's a masterwork. And, you know, not just relying on seeing things that are new to inform because that's not, that's not the way a film person should think or feel. Not like. yep. You know, it's all about what's come before, what you're seeing, because, you know, um, everything informs what you're seeing. And I think that's like, that's what us historians are here to do, is to remind people, hang on, yeah, you just watched, you know, Star Wars episode 5000, <laughs> whatever, but go back and watch all these westerns and these, you know, gangster films and all this stuff that informed this. Because this is something that you need to sort of do and respect. And a lot of people just don't do it because they're not really film fans. And I get it, but it, it just kills me because it's just like, how can you not love films, but then actually say you think you are a, a film fan because you're not? Right. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. So, to answer your question, sorry, I just digressed. But no, to answer, yeah, it feels it, it, it's great to get it done, but then it's kind of like, you know, Hopefully, people are venturing out and finding this stuff out yeah. because the musicals one was really fascinating. Just a very quick summary: um, most of the audience I was finding for it were people who already were familiar with my work in the horror field. Um, so it was really it was really cool to know that these horror fans were also obviously musicals fans. So I was like, okay, what these people are are film fans, yeah, and. That's that's the cool, that's the trick. You just need to love everything. You can get Lee's We Can Be Who We Are from Amazon and wherever books are sold. Please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Otherwise, you'll force us to break into song. Yeesh. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time.